1: Talking about how to break that down and we talk a lot about getting a top-down view that a good pitch in Hollywood starts out with a hook and then goes to a log line and then from there you go into a three-act structure in the way you construct your pitch. Now I deal a lot with stage fright, not how to get it but how to treat it and somebody came to me and said basically You know, I graduated from Stanford. I'm on the fast track. I work as an investment banker. And once a week, I have to go in front of the board and give a report about a company that I've studied to see if they ought to invest in it. And I look out there, I'm spouting numbers, and I see glazed over eyes, just bored to tears. And I get so nervous having to do this every week. We said, let's try three-act structure. So what we're going to do is act one... What's the world that you're in? So give the background to this company and make it human. Talk about interesting facets of the company so they want to hear more. Chapter two, you heighten all the conflicts. So any problems that this company has, this is where you bring them out. Because they're going to want to know this. And so you say any risk, any stuff like that, or any chance for a great possible gain, this is your emotional act. And then act three, you resolve it. He came back saying, I love doing this now. The first thing I noticed is I'm using not even half the numbers I used to use, because now I got a test. If the number tells the story it's in, if it doesn't, it doesn't belong there. And he says, the biggest compliment I got is all the other people that do what I do have used my model now, and they're imitating my pitches.
2: How you day, how you day. That was the voice of Peter Desberg. Now, this is one of my favorite episodes. Some of you might not know this, but I am a cinephile. I love movies. I love TV shows. I study them for a living just because I love the psychology of knowing what characters go through, knowing who the hero is and villain is and understanding the motivations. I study human behavior for a living after all. So it's always fun for me to try and play that game from my couch or in the cinema. So, when I got pitched that Peter would be a great guest on the show, I was so excited because his book, Pitch Like Hollywood, is incredible. It really just takes you on a journey of what it takes to sell a story, to sell a performance. And he's got a wealth of experiences you will see. He has so many interesting stories, and he and I engage in so many pieces of dialogue. You don't have to be an actor to listen to this episode. You don't have to be into movies to listen to this episode. What you will find is that every single tip he offers is so applicable to life. You're going to find out how to use your emotion, how to pique your curiosity, and how to incorporate those elements that have sold classic Hollywood pitches into your life. So if you've ever wanted to communicate better, this is an episode for you. And I will argue that everyone can benefit from communicating better. Enjoy the episode and make sure you grab the book. In the show notes. Welcome everyone to another episode of As Told by Nomads and today I have with me one of the authors of Pitch Like Hollywood and if you can't tell from my voice I'm very excited. I have been fascinated with the concept of pitching whether it's me being a consultant pitching from that level whether it's me teaching my students as a professor or whether it's me pitching a concept that I believe can help revolutionize human behavior. The whole idea of pitching is an art that I feel like any field can learn from. Now, Peter, Peter is a professor emeritus at California State University and the recipient of the Distinguished Teaching Award and Outstanding Professor Award. So a lot of excellence here. He's also a licensed clinical psychologist specializing in the area of stage fright and performance anxiety author of 23 books. He's been quoted in such publications as the Wall Street Journal, College Today, and New York Times, and has consulted for companies including Apple, Boeing, Toyota, in areas of pitching, persuasion, and corporate presentations. He loves using storytelling and humor in business presentations. Welcome to the show, Peter.
1: Sheesh, after that introduction, I'm not quite sure what to say. Um, (laughs) Now, let me tell you about one of the worst introductions I've ever had. A colleague at the university said, hey, would you come into my class and give a talk about the cognitive therapy of depression? And I said, sure. He says, do you want an intro? I said, yeah. So I'm expecting him to say, this is Dr. Desberg. He's done research in this area. He's done clinical work. this. This is my good friend, Peter. The funniest guy you'll ever hear in your life. So sit back and be prepared to be entertained. And the students are sitting there like this. Well, yeah, go ahead. Make me laugh. Death. Absolute death.
2: You know, that's the funny thing about presentations here. So when you're pitching someone, there's that expectation that you're setting up. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Because your friend did something that in your head, you're like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait. You're setting them up for something that I wasn't prepared for. Is that a mistake a lot of people make when they're
1: pitching? His intention couldn't have been nicer and purer. He just had no idea the setup he was giving me. You know, One of the things that we talk about in pitching is we talk a lot about the psychology of persuasion. And in the area of persuasion, one of the big issues is credibility. Do you have credibility? And intros are one way to get it. He had the chance to do that, and instead... (laughs) He
2: took the other way. I love that. That definitely goes into that pathos, ethos, logos uh, framework there for
1: credibility. You've read your Aristotle. That's nice. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you know... like it. I always make sure I study these things thoroughly, but... You're on your game.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But one of the games that people have not quite understood yet... It's the Game of Hollywood. Now, you live under the H sign in the Hollywood sign. Anyone that follows movies, if you've seen that Hollywood sign in the movies, he's under the H sign right there.
1: He's out there waving.
2: Yeah, he's out there waving. (laughs) But the Game of Hollywood is one that people haven't quite figured out, right? Some people will tell you. I watch a lot of those actress and actress interviews. They'll tell you, I've been in this industry for 15 years. I didn't even realize this screenplay was the one that was going to get me there. And then some... They were just casted right out of some mall, and that was the beginning of the career. So there was no, seemingly rather, no rule for what it takes to succeed in Hollywood. So tell me, why did you decide to tackle this?
1: We started writing a book about pitching in Hollywood, and that's when we realized that these principles work everywhere, and that a Hollywood pitch is pretty much like any other pitch, comma, but... (laughs) They've added a few things that make it so much more wonderful that other people really ought to know about, and it's a big part of our book, that if you watch a Hollywood pitch, what they're really, really good at is they get into the emotional aspects of a pitch, and you don't just get dry data and statistics. They invoke curiosity. You know, In a good book, you refer to it as a page turner, and that's kind of what a pitch ought to be. And you kind of wonder, like, what's going to happen next? We interviewed a a wonderful screenwriter who was incredible at pitching. And he said, when you pitch, you've got to get their attention right away. He says, I don't start out my pitch by saying, you know, Joe was an ordinary guy. So he woke up one day and he was shaving and he ate his breakfast and he went outside to find. says no. My pitch starts out, Joe walked outside and saw the meteor about to collide with the earth. (laughs) Yeah. You want to get immediately and start thinking, well, yeah, where are you going? What's going to happen? And so we spend an awful lot of time talking about how to break that down. And we talk a lot about getting a top-down view that a good pitch in Hollywood starts out with a hook and then goes to a log line. And then from there, you go into a three-act structure in the way you construct your pitch. Now, I deal a lot with stage fright, not how to get it, but how to treat it. And somebody came to me and said, basically, you know, I graduated from Stanford. I'm on the fast track. I work as an investment banker. And once a week, I have to go in front of the board and give a report about a company that I've studied to see if they ought to invest in it. And I look out there, I'm spouting numbers, and I see glazed over eyes, just bored to tears. And I get so nervous having to do this every week. We said, let's try three-act structure. So what we're going to do is act one, what's the world that you're in? So give the background to this company and make it human. Talk about interesting facets of the company so they want to hear more. Chapter two, you heighten all the conflicts. So any problems that this company has, this is where you bring them out because they're going to want to know this. And so you say any risk, any stuff like that, or any chance for a great possible gain, this is your emotional act. And then act three, you resolve it. She came back saying, I love doing this now. The first thing I noticed is I'm using not even half the numbers I used to use because now I got a test. If the number tells the story it's in, if it doesn't, it doesn't belong there. Yes. And he says, the biggest compliment I got is all the other people that do what I do have used my model now, and they're imitating my pitches.
2: Isn't that that brilliant, though? It's being able to extract the emotion of what you're trying to say and then tell the story around that. I often tell my students, I, was, I teach public speaking, and in college, we're going to get to stage fright soon. And you, I would love that we have you here because this is something you studied. They're always talking. I can't, I, you know, I could talk to my friends, but no, it's the stage fright. I can't get there. I'll have them do an introductory speech. as the first assignment. And I always tell them to find an object or picture that is really important to them. And I want them to tell the class how that's significant to them. I just leave it vague like that because I want them to be able to translate that in an interesting way. And oftentimes they'll do it the way the gentleman you brought up does it? you know, they'll be so technical about it. And then I always tell them, all right, let's try an exercise. Tell me what the theme of what you were saying is or what the emotion of that speech was. And they'll say, well, you know, it's like about solidarity. It's about perseverance. And then I'll tell them, imagine you had started that speech with the way you explained this to me. We would have been more hooked as opposed to saying, well, my object is this. And well, I don't know, I guess it's, I like it this way. I couldn't think of it. You know, that's how they usually start. And it's such a conversational approach when you find out what the emotion is behind what you're trying to say, as opposed to looking at it from such a technical point of view that you take
1: away the emotion. Totally. And if you can get a story that has that in there to start, you nailed him. I give talks on stage fright all the time.
2: That's that's what I was going to ask on. What is the problem with stage fright?
1: Here's the way I start. First thing I do is I say, you know, to make this more interesting and to get you involved, I'm going to pick three people at random as volunteers to come up and introduce themselves. But I don't just want you to say, Hi, my name is so and so. This is what I do. I want you to make yourself sound incredibly interesting. The goal is when we take a break, everybody wants to come over and meet you and get to know you better. So tell people what's unique about you, why you really make a difference in their lives, why they should want to get to know you. And then I say, I don't want to just spring this on you. So I'm going to give you a minute to think about. And literally, I have a clock on the screen counting down seconds. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm walking around the room, making eye contact with everybody, scaring the hell out of them. And of course, they're dying now because they're thinking, like everybody in the audience is thinking to themselves, I know he's going to pick me. I know it's going to be. So then I'm looking at him in the eye. And then I say, you know, I hope you don't mind if I take a couple extra seconds, because I love tormenting people like this. (laughs) And so they're dying now. And then finally I say, relax, I'm not going to make you get up and do this. But normally you start a talk and nobody's involved emotionally. But you guys just got in touch with your own stage fright. Wow. So now when I talk to you, you're feeling what I'm talking about, not just hearing it. Wow. Wow. I, that is so brilliant.
2: I was listening to you thinking, oh, he's." I want to hear who he's going to pick, who he's going to pick and what they are going to do. And the approach it took actually, it's such a great way of internalizing that. Now, this is me playing the other side consistently because I hear it all the time. They'll still say, look, I get it. I know my stuff, but I still can't deal with the nerves. I'm always shaking. It takes away my emotion. I sound robotic. What can I do? What is happening within me? I have my panic attacks, all those things. What do you say?
1: Oh, yeah since we have four chapters in the book on this, I'm limited in what I can say here. Oh, yes, yes. Make sure you get the book. (laughs) I'll give you a couple of things. One thing that I make sure of is every two or three minutes, I'm going to say something to them that I know is going to get a reaction. It'll be a story. It'll be a joke. It'll be a question. But I know I'll get their involvement. And so I look for No matter how this is going, I know in a minute and a half, I'm going to wow them with something. So I'm always looking forward to the next thing I'm going to say. And there are things you can do, like asking questions of an audience, if they're good questions, is a great tool, especially if you make them counterintuitive. If I say to you, for example, Ty, what do you think is the thing that the Chinese steal from us more than anything else? Mm. And most people are going to go for, uh, they're taking videos, they're stealing music. And so by asking you the question, you think of an answer, and now you're involved because you say, I wonder if I got it right. So I got your involvement now because you're invested, and then I'm going to stun you with the answer. Now, I know that sounds kind of cocky to say, yeah, well, I bet you don't get it, but I bet you don't. Prozac. <laughs> I
2: had no idea.
1: Who knew? They're stealing out pranks. Uh, (laughs) They're getting their antidepressants. And so now the nice thing is I got them. They're invested. They want to hear what I'm going to say next because they don't know and it's not going to be boring.
2: That's the secret though. I use that as as an example. I always ask people to come up with an attention getter in a certain way. So I will tell them, use a story, ask a question, say a statistic, like an odd statistic. Some statistic like... 2% of you will be rich by the end of your 30 years or something like that, just something like that. And the reason I always have people do that, in addition to this one more tip here, which is using your observation skill set. So if you come into a university and you see, I don't know, a slogan or something and it relates to you in some shape or form, or you see some people using it and some people not. Hey, I noticed half of you there did this. All those little moments buy time for you to actually even feel more confident because you're getting engagement from an audience And a lot of the things a lot of people feel stage fright about, is the audience going to even like me? Are they going to get me? Are they going to think I'm serious? But when you get a reaction out of them, that lessens, and then you feel more confident.
1: You nailed it. There are two predictors of how much stage fright somebody's going to feel. One is fears about their competence. I'm going to screw up. I'm going to forget. I'm going to stammer. I'm going to get things wrong. I'm not going to be able to do it. For me, the worst example of this for people is music students having to do a recital. You know, It's like, oh, Lord, please just make my fingers hit the right keys. That's all I want. The other is people know that they know how to do what they're going to do, but they're afraid the audience isn't going to like it. And the example I always use for them is stand-ups, stand-up comics. These guys know their materials so well. You could be pulling their toenails off, they could still do their 15-minute arc. But they had their own word for stage fright, flop sweat. Everyone has it. And if the last 10 shows you did were great, you're still worried that the next one, you're going to get a bunch of people who were just staring at them. Yeah. And so those two things terrify people. And then, of course, the problem is when you're pitching, it's like, well, either you're going to make all my dreams come true, or I'm going to go back to sleeping in my car and working at Pottery Barn. So, you know, the, the stakes are so high that obviously you're going to feel a lot of this. And that's why he decided to pitch at Hollywood. High stakes. Couldn't be any more so. And, you know, part of what makes uh, Hollywood pitching particularly so difficult is the numbers are so high that we have sort of a joke that in Hollywood, you look for somebody who has the power to say maybe. Because, <laughs> you know... You can pass on five great projects, your job is safe, but you make one bad project, resume time.
2: And we've seen a lot of that, right? You know, with stars, rags, riches, and the ones where you might be chosen as the Hollywood it person or Hollywood it writer. M. Night Shyamalan, director, right? Oh, sure. He had that run. Then he had another run. Now he's on the like the middle basic. Now he's not a failure. He's actually considered as okay. This is we've actually accepted you as who you are. But when he first came, I remember you know six cents, all these things. Everybody was like, "This guy can't miss. This guy is is all these things." And now I think a lot of that also had to do with him coming to terms with who he was as a director. Because I've heard him talk now, and he's at peace. I don't think he has to worry about the expectation that was there. And yeah, he doesn't have to prove anything anymore. Not anymore, right? And then you have the other people. Well, Hollywood is so fascinating because then there's like rankings. There's the TV, there's the soaps, there's the blockbuster, and now they're streaming. And so if you don't do something like, whoa, you're in this?
1: Today It's crazy. I'm reading a book now. There are three areas of the book that we think are really cool that other people haven't touched. One is Hollywood we're talking about, two, states, right? Three, we're looking at the psychology of persuasion. And I'm reading a book now about influencers, making me crazy as I see this. And it is now a fine-grained technology because Hollywood is, everything has become numbers. You know, my daughter's 30. If I mention somebody to her, before anything, she'll say, let me look them up on Instagram and see how famous they are. And they say, oh, 30,000 followers, not worth knowing about. (laughs) Oh, he's got two and a half million followers. This guy's big. It's crazy. We've literally been reduced to those numbers.
0: How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment.
2: Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/slash-weight-loss. That's plushcare.com/slash-weight-loss. plushcare.com/slash-weight-loss.
1: Influencers, which are like ninety-five percent women, they're making six figures just to influence a product, just to endorse a product. It used to just be you know you got uh, LeBron's jersey up there. You know, used to be athletes and actors. Now they're influencers. What's your skill? Oh, my skill is being famous. Oh, my gosh.
2: Yeah, this could be a whole different podcast. But this persuasion skill is so interesting for me because I I am in my 30s. I teach kids in their late teens and early 20s and even MBA students sometimes. And the shift is happening. I'm watching it happen with my career. I wonder about the psychology of someone's Value. If you don't know your intrinsic value and you allow it to extrinsically be defined by numbers, it's so
1: much. Here's the interesting thing. One of the things that I can brag about here is that this book is not based on our opinions. And since you've talked to me for a couple of minutes... Oh, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> but being a, a boring college professor, I guess that's redundant. We looked at the science part of this. So there's hundreds of references in the book. So we look also, what's the research basis behind what we're saying? What makes the psychology of persuasion so fascinating is that most of the time, everything's happening under the radar. Yeah, You don't realize it's being done unto you. I'll give you a great example of a study. There's a phenomenon called priming. Priming has to do with words that can change your emotions and thoughts about things. So in this study, they took two groups of college students and they gave them each a list of five words and said, hey, sit in your group here and just recombine these words to make different sentences out of them. No big deal. One group had words that kind of make you think of old age you know they used words like wrinkled, gray, that kind of stuff. The other group had words having to do with youth, yellow, speedy. Then they said, "Okay, thank you for making these sentences." Now, the next part of this study is down at the end of this long corridor on the door on the right. But the real experiment was, once they walked out of the room, they timed them to see how long it would take them to walk down the corridor. The group that had the words about youth walked way faster than the group that had the words about old age. And then when they asked them later, do you realize you walked slower and you had the?" No, I had no idea. Hmm. It's amazing. There's a ton of studies like this. I don't know if you've read... uh, I'm pushing another book here. Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. He's one of my heroes.
2: I haven't read it yet, but I've heard good things.
1: You got to read it. The nice thing is you read 10 pages at a time Then you have to absorb it before you can go on. (laughs) Brilliant book I've written the last 30 years. He did an interesting study, which ended up being a priming study. He asked college students, how happy are you? And what has your social life been like the last two weeks? And he asked these questions. Half of them had that order. The other half, what's your social life been for the last two weeks? How happy are you? Depending on the order of the questions, their happiness ratings were totally different. If they asked them about the social life first, they primed them to think about it. And because of that, they thought, hey, well, it's pretty good. If they just started with, how happy are you? Eh." That's priming. Yeah. Yeah. And so all of this stuff is essential because in these days where everybody is obsessed with concepts like branding and stuff, what they're really talking about is priming. How can we get these people to get associations with stuff that make them kind of move in the direction that I want.
2: This is one of the reasons I I was excited to have you on, just because you were navigating a concept that is is as old as time. Anyone is, throughout history, we've told stories, we've pitched, we've loved the great storytellers, we've been bored by the storytellers we didn't connect to. And it's a way of life in self-development when we're telling stories about ourselves it's a way of life. And we're telling stories about how we want to win an election, how we want to get someone to buy into a team, free agency with sports. And I love that you extrapolate this concept, but you said you did it in three ways, like the art of persuasion. You're talking about stage fright itself and the industry itself. I hope that as people listen to this, they understand that even though the industry has changed, we talk about influencers, numbers, what is something that will never change is your ability to connect to a story. Because I would hearken in that example to even say, let's say your daughter had that 30K person versus the 2.5 million person. And if that 30K person has somehow managed to cultivate an engaged audience as a 30K, and the 2.5 million person is only just thinking about, oh, well, I just got this brand, that that person will be more successful personally and more fulfilled because of how they can tell and communicate the story of their value, and so it really is about figuring out how to marry that quantity versus quality, and if you get both, that's just the ultimate Will Smith box office champ type thing.
1: I read a wonderful book by a, an English literature professor who talks about this. is a eight hundred page, very scholarly book, and what he does in there. If you've ever read any of Noam Chomsky's work on linguistics, not his his social stuff, which is brilliant. Ah, I haven't read the linguistic ones. I've read the social her He's one of my absolute heroes. And I agree with just about everything he says socially, but the ling- he revolutionized linguistics. He changed the way linguistics is studied. Before him, people talked about the structure of languages, what's similar with this language and that language, what's different, if He says, no, 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 I approach language like a cognitive scientist. And there's something about language that's universal. I look for universal elements, like every language has a subject, verb, object structure. Why is that? Well, because it's related to how we think. It's related to how we put thoughts together, subject, verb, object. Who is it? What are they doing? What are they doing it to? And this fellow is saying, in a very similar way, language, he's saying there are seven basic plots and stories. And you can take any piece of literature and put it into these seven categories because it has to do with the way we think and the way we organize stuff. One of the things that that psychologists look at that stories, for instance, there are tons of studies looking at college lecturers and they compare how long do their students remember the content of a story versus just straight old expository lectures. it's like night and day. Sometimes I'll bump into a student I haven't seen in 10 or 12 years. He says, you know, I still use that story you told us about because that's how they remember the concepts that we talked about. Yeah. It's absolutely essential stuff, which is why, again, we say when you're pitching, it's stories. And one of the things that we talk about a lot that I think having seen some of your work, uh, you'll agree with, is that pitching is not selling. You don't talk at people. Pitching is a conversation. Great example of this. One of the other things we did in the book—Heaven forbid somebody read a book of my opinions! Oh my God, it's slit your wrist! But we interviewed a lot of people who were very successful at pitching and got great stories. And one of them was this woman who's the, at the time, was the president of an advertising company. But she talks about how when she was first starting. She went out on a pitch with her art director and the art director finishes saying, okay, we've got the ideas for six different ad campaigns, goes through each one. And he says, well, what do you think? And the guy says, I hate everything you've shown me. I've hated every one of those. And she says, oh, I got to waste the time. This is terrible. We failed. And this guy smiles at the person who just said, I hate everything you showed me. And he says, which one did you hate the least? He got the guy to start talking about why some were not as terrible as others and what he was really looking for. And that opened up this huge conversation till they got the kind of thing he wanted and they ended up selling him because he turned it into a conversation and he got the guy to talk about what he was interested in rather than me telling you what you're going to want. I'm now really getting your essence and finding out what you want, which is what I'm here to find out about
2: That's such a great story. It's a great illustration of it, too. Definitely, and again, we're going to put the link to the book in the show notes so you can definitely internalize all these things. And I don't want to monopolize all your time because I know we'll come to a close here, but I do want to give you a chance to talk about your co-author, Jeffrey Davis.
1: Jeffrey is a third-generation Hollywood guy. His dad was Hollywood royalty. He was a showrunner for A Dream of Genie and uh, The Odd Couple. If you've ever heard of the Iowa Writers Workshop, which is like the the Harvard of writing programs, that's where Jeffrey got his MFA. He is an incredible writer, playwright, and he teaches screenwriting at uh, Loyola Marymount University. It's funny. (laughs) People are always saying to him, can you really teach somebody to be a screenwriter? Mm -hmm. And he smiles at them and says, we can teach craft. We don't teach talent. (laughs) Gus. That was a great answer. He is a a brilliant writer and editor. We're lucky that we're both writers, but our skills are complementary. So every dialogue has two voices. And I'm going to tell you how we work because you're the son of a diplomat. Yes. So I think you'll appreciate this. I once heard the art of diplomacy is saying nice doggy till you can find a big rock. (laughs) Made me laugh. But when we disagree on something, what we do is say, okay, we're going to each pitch the other one on our idea. And then if either one of us still doesn't like it, then we're going to just chuck the whole thing because we have enough belief, first of all, in the other person's taste and reasoning, but also we think we're creative enough. So if either one of us doesn't like an idea, we can come up with something we'll both like. And so we never argue, which is great. We disagree, but we never argue. Because if we can't convince the other after one go-round, then we say, there's something better out there. Let's switch gears and find it.
2: I wonder if a lot of couples could use that. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like a a life skill there. He's talked about screenwriting. and I I, Again, I'm a student of this just because I'm always fascinated by stories. One of my favorite screenwriters would be Aaron Sorkin. And I remember... Yeah, and this was after the West Wing.
1: writer, the man is a god. (laughs) See, look at you.
2: Yeah, and so you're talking about someone like Aaron Sorkin, and then you think about someone like who I also admire was Lin Manuel Miranda. These are people constructing such complicated dialogues, and in Lin's case, also songwriting. In addition to you know, it's a Broadway play, it's a movie, directing all these things. If you could just take me into this, is just for my own pleasure here. What is happening inside someone's head for them to be able to inhabit all of those worlds and then communicate that in such a way that translates?
1: I almost have an answer for that. <laughs> almost. Well, keyword word is almost. I'm leaving a little hedging room. Yeah. But when Jeffrey and I wrote Now That's Funny, we interviewed some of Hollywood's best comedy writers to find out how they work. Now, the problem is, You know, as an artist yourself, it's hard to ask an artist what their process is. You don't know if they're romanticizing it, if they really understand it themselves. There's a great phrase, the highest form of fiction is the autobiography. (laughs) So what we did was we came up with what we thought was a really good idea. We wrote a short generic comedy premise and gave it to each one of these guys and said, develop it for us. So we're going to sit here while you create comedy on the spot, we're going to watch. It's like looking in somebody's ears and watching their brains work. It was amazing. So I'm very proud of the book because we hardly did anything except edit it, made a few comments. And these brilliant people, we were smart enough to write it down and edit it. But it was an incredible thing to watch. And also both being academics as well as writers, you know, a good academic, when he does a study, makes the prediction first, and then your study is to see if the prediction holds true. So we said, do you think they're going to go more for character or they're going to go more for story? I won't embarrass you by asking you to say, which do you think? Because the answer is neither. Always ask counterintuitive questions. Killer. They went for conflict. Uh... And all good comedy comes out of conflict. And the thing that's so cool about this book is some of these guys, as they were doing it, they weren't just writing, but they were narrating their thought process as they did it. And so we're watching how they think. It was just amazing. I remember we had one talk. One of the people we interviewed was a sadly passed away now, a Leonard Stern, who goes all the way back to the Honeymooners and, uh, you know, Get Smart, Buck Henry. And he was saying, all of my comedy comes out of conflict, but I never use hostile conflict. It all comes out of conflict based on love. He said, if you look at, say, every episode of I Love Lucy, it was two people that loved each other, but wanted different things and each thought they were right. Conflict. Clash heads over it. Ah. So conflict doesn't have to be me hitting you over the head. You know, when you're saying you shouldn't become a writer, go to pharmacy school. Conflict. Yeah. You know? That's conflict. That's conflict. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you it's know, based out of, you know, in your heart. But it comes out as conflict and you can have great arguments with somebody you love and care about.
2: This is going to be a great read. I can tell a lot of people are going to love the book for sure. And and I have a copy. Uh, I was lucky enough to get an early copy. And it's coming out by the time this episode comes out, the book will be out. So make sure you get this because as you've just heard, it isn't just about Hollywood. It's about how you communicate in general. And we're pitching every day, whether we like it or not. You know, when someone is co- you walk into a room, there's someone that has an impression of you.
1: You know, you ask somebody on a day you're pitching, you're trying to you know, to sell your idea to, to IBM, you're pitching. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So why can people get the book? We don't have a physical copy of the book yet.
2: Oh, you do. I
1: have it before you. How is that even possible? Yes, we have, you know, the galleys.
2: Oh, yeah. You know what? You're right. I actually have, you're right. I don't think I have the final copy.
1: You have a paper copy. I'm so envious. I don't know if you can see the saliva coming out. Oh, yeah. (laughs) we are in absolute envy. But uh, yeah, you know, we're, we're really proud of the book because there are so many creative people out there who have great ideas, but they have trouble communicating. Yeah. And one of the things that we talk about that I think is interesting is that With writers, for example, a lot of writers come out of acting and they've had improv training and they are great at pitching. You cannot throw these guys. But there are other people that say, you know what? I'm a writer. I'm more comfortable with the door closed and nobody around and just my keyboard in front of me. And when I have to get out there and talk to people and look them in the eye, I don't like that so much. Their ideas should be heard. There are a lot of people that have wonderful ideas, but they just don't seem they get in their own way. We have a wonderful chapter on how to practice your pitch, things that you wouldn't think about. As again, you know, I, this is an area I know all the research in. And we have ways of practicing you wouldn't imagine. It's like we tell people, for example, great exercise before when you think you really have your pitch down, stand in a room by yourself. And start running in place till you start getting out of breath and then pitch. And if you do that, you're simulating a panic attack. And if you know you can pitch under those conditions, you're bulletproof. You can do it anyway. Who would think of that, you know? So there's is all, you know, kinds of just interesting tips. I love it. So we're hoping that people that have creative ideas will have an easier time to get other people convinced that this is a way to go.
2: And the books are everywhere books are sold. So Amazon bookstores everywhere.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And please accept my humble thanks. This was one of the most pleasant, charming interviews I've ever been through. Oh my gosh. <clears throat> Didn't you like an interview, pardon the term, but it felt like a conversation. And I really, really appreciate you and ad- admire your skill base.
2: Oh my goodness.
1: <laughs> You've made this so pleasant and so easy. Thank you.
2: Oh, no, it's a real pleasure. I, and and thank you. That's the highest compliment you can pay me. I always want every podcast to be like a conversation. But I deeply admire what you and Jeffrey do because stories saved my life. And I try to teach storytelling to other people. And so whenever I, I have people like yourself, I, I'm just like a sponge. <laughs> you know, I'm like, yo, tell me as much as you can. So thank you. I really appreciate that. Oh, I do have one final question before I let you go. Please. My mission statement is use your difference to make a difference. So I often ask my guests how they use their difference to make a difference. So, Peter, how do you use your difference to make a difference?
1: That should be an easy question. And I'll sort of go back to what I was saying before is that having a great idea is a wonderful thing. Being able to convince somebody who can help you express it and make it happen is the place where we really want to come in and help because the world needs an awful lot of good ideas to be listened to because some of the not so good ones are being listened to way too much,
2: way too much. <laughs> I cannot think of a better way to end of the podcast. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Peter. This has been Peter Dixberg. Thank you. Yes. The pleasure is mine. Make sure you get the book pitch like Hollywood. Everything will be in the show notes in Kings, Queens, and royalty Till next time. Use your difference.